I know priests to say, okay, what do we do to make the mass more attractive? And they hire this kind of band. A band, it's a concert. I don't go mass to mass just to have a concert. Absolutely not. No. no Absolutely right. not. Right. Why, what is the problem? That we don't believe. The only way to express your love and your relationship with God is through these established rituals. Yes. And those rituals is not the will of the people. Yeah. It's, not, it's not some kind of democracy. We decide what to do. No, 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 no. It's Yahweh himself who said, this is the way how I want it. So literally, the liturgical expression is fulfilling the will of God. Mm -hmm. Remember that many before us, for centuries, they gave their life because they believed that this is real. And their blood became the seeds of so many others to believe. Mm -hmm. So in one way or another, this must be true. And I want to welcome you to the Bible Timeline Show. I'm Jeff Cavins. Good to have you with us. Today we're going to be talking about that period in salvation history, which absolutely splits everything up, becomes very complicated. It's the black period on your Bible timeline, the divided kingdom. Their identity now is scrambled, and they're going to have to come up, frankly, with kind of a whole new faith, kind of a whole new faith. No temple, no priests, no uh, uh, real tradition, and that's going to cause problems in the North. But the biggest problem of all, and we're going to address this today with our guest, Father Dempsey, that is the problem of the temple. So we're going to take a look at how important is the liturgy, not only back in the divided kingdom, but then we're going to, we're going to move all the way up to the present time here, and we're going to ask ourselves some questions about the importance of our liturgy. This form of worship that Judah had in Jerusalem, that form of worship was not man-made. That came straight from God. That pattern was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and that, my friend, is why it worked. And today, you and I have been given the holy sacrifice of the Mass with we have been given the, uh, the sacraments, we've been given the priesthood, and we have the Al-Habbait, the prime minister in the church, the Holy Father. And you know what? It works. It works. But if you leave that, you're going to have to come up with something else. And the question is, is that something else what Jesus gave us? Good to have you. I'm very happy to be On the be show. Here. It's actually, we've, we've known each other, but it's the first time we've actually met. Exactly. <laughs> and you play my role on the Bible in a Year when I was with Father Mike. That's right. And you, That's look, you look a lot like me. Yeah, especially I sound exactly like you. You do, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. No, it's good, to, it's good to finally meet you. And here we are talking about the divided kingdom. But before we get into that, what was your experience like with the Bible in a Year to the Latino community? Oh, my goodness. It has been very intense. We Father Sergio, actually, we have a great deal of chemistry and great success, actually. There has been a lot of people listening to it. I guess that we have an average of half a million people, according to wow. what I know from Father Sergio and the Juan Diego Network. Um, that is an average. Sometimes they said there is a million, sometimes half a million. So more or less is there. Sometimes it's a little bit less. But I, I'm not into the statistics. I just no, but, do but it. It's, <laughs> but it's interesting. Yes. You know, you obviously it's uh, it's touching a good nerve uh, in, yes. the, in the community. Yes. And there's a hunger, isn't there, for the Bible? Very much so. In fact, in the statistics, 
when I was talking to Father Sergio, he said, no, there are people even from Japan listening to it. So what? That gets stuck in me because Japan, mm -hmm. so it seems like there's a Spanish community in Japan sure. that they're actually following the podcast quite faithfully, actually, I yeah. have to say. Well, you and I both, uh, Father Mike, Father Sergio, we are all, I guess you could say, um, carriers of this good message. It's not yeah. our story. Exactly. No, I didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. No. Nobody made it up. No. It is God's story. And now we've been given the opportunity to, to share the story yes. with the rest of the world. And I found, and I'm sure you have too, that when you tell this story, when you tell the story in a dynamic, doable way, people are excited. And it's not that they don't want to read the Bible. They want to, but they, they don't know how. Yes, or they are afraid to it, mm -hmm. or maybe they never were used to it, because especially in the Catholic world, that is very common. Yeah. So you have a Bible for decoration in the house, but you never read it. Uh, especially in the Latin American cultures. My goodness, you don't have any idea. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. In fact, make me laugh, because when we are talking for the searcher and I, and we are talking about our experience with the Bible. He actually said, well, you know, I grew up in a family. We never read the Bible. And I said, me too. Never. I don't have no even, no even one memory of reading the Bible with my mother or my father. Ever. Ever. <laughs> the only Bible that I know is thanks to God because of the Catholic schools where I went. Uh -huh. Because they make us to read the Bible. Oh, especially in preparation for catechism. Sure. But not in families. But we always have a Bible in the family, but it was a decoration. It was there, very, very beautiful. Well, remember that picture. thought, because a little later <laughs> on, I'm gonna ask, I want to ask you uh, how you got into the All scripture, right. you know, and how you, how you became so interested in it. Well, we're looking at the divided kingdom, which, as you know, is probably one of the most complicated yeah. <laughs> in the entire Bible. Everything seems to be going okay, a nice story, and all of a sudden, Judah, you know, um, Israel, Samaria, Jerusalem, Jeroboam, Rahab, what's going on at this point, you know? Everything gets very, very complicated. And unless people understand the basic structure of what's happening in the narrative, it's going to be very difficult for them to understand the, 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 the value of the temple yes. and the liturgy and the, the line of David in the south versus the ten tribes to the north. So as fathers, we look at this divided kingdom period here. What was liturgy like? before that temple was built in Jerusalem. First of all, we need to actually pay attention to the tent of the encounter, or what we call in some English translation, the meeting tent. Mm -hmm. Why? Because that meeting tent become literally this space, and here it's very important to keep this in mind, it's the space not where God is residing, it's the space where God will come down to meet, to have some kind of an appointment, an encounter, with Moses and then the people of Israel. So it's many times the people say, no, the, the meeting tent or the temple later on will be the temple is the space where God resides. No, the temple does not limit the presence of God, which is omnipotence, goes beyond that. But it's the special place in which God will have a special encounter. Mm -hmm. And that in that Ark of Covenant is literally the throne upon which God sits down to encounter, or the cloud or the Shekinah will come down to have this encounter. This mm -hmm. is actually the very special moment. So a place becomes at the same time a symbol of the reality of the presence of God, mm -hmm. but doesn't limit the presence of God. And of course, in that encounter, God has some demands. Okay, For example, if I'm a guest in your house, right? Mm -hmm. So you will say, well, Father Dempsey, so are you allergic to, to cheese? I said, well, yes, yeah, I'm allergic to cheese. Well, what about peanuts? No, peanuts I'm okay. Okay, fine. So actually, 
for our encounter, you prepared your house. So for the Dempsey, he's allergic to this, but he likes this. So you make a list of the things and you prepare mm-hmm. for my encounter with you or for my staying with you. So literally, God himself, already in the book of Exodus, he will say to, to Moses, I'm going to live with you, with your people, but you have to build me a tent. And it's supposed to be in this way. And I want this material. And then after that, now I will give you the prescription, which is all the book of Leviticus. And this is exactly what the people is going to do. Why? Because I am Yahweh, Adonai, and I am allergic to sin. <laughs> I'm allergic. So he's lactose intolerant. So he's sin intolerant. Right? <laughs> so, so in that environment, so this is what you have to do. So the priests, if they do some kind of a trespass, they have to offer these sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And then for the people, for every single detail, you have to do something, you know, to do a reparation. That means to eliminate this trespassing that is affecting God, but at the same time, it's affecting how you relate with him, mm-hmm. how he's actually living or walking with you throughout that period of time. Mm-hmm. So the liturgy becomes not just only an empty um, ritual of sacrifices. No, the sacrifice actually is an expression of your entire being. It's, it's existential. It's not just only physical things. There is, in the Semitic mindset in ancient times, doesn't exist as we do today, the division between humanity or the body and the soul. No, everything is one single thing. So if I trespass, it's my totality. Mm-hmm. So I need mm-hmm. to do a reparation because I don't want to offend my guests. Mm-hmm. I don't want to offend this guy who loves me so much, and I don't want you to leave because he will have a reaction because of me. Sure. So I'm using this terminology of the reaction. Oh, no, I like that. I like, I like it very much. And I've never thought of God as being sin intolerant, but I guess it's true. It's true. You know, that, that, that you yes. and we should be sin intolerant, by the yeah, way. Exactly. So this all takes place. Uh, with Moses on right. Mount Sinai. They've been in bondage for 400 years. Yes. They're coming out in the book of Exodus, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and he catches a vision for this. He sees this plan in heaven. It's like an, uh, a type of what's, what's in heaven. Exactly. And so he comes back down and says, guys, look, we're going to make this tent. Uh, we're going to make this meeting place where God is going to meet us. And I like the way you put that, that God is going to dwell among us. He's not above the clouds like Greek and Roman mythology later, but he is with us. And we're going to build this for beauty and glory. In fact, when God chose the chief artisan, Bezalel, he gave him that command, make this according to beauty and glory. And so that it would say something of God. It wasn't just a beautiful place, but everything said something, didn't it? Exactly. It reflects. That is the beauty of liturgy. Liturgy is a public service, right? But at the same time, liturgy is a performance in which you apply symbols that are real, that we can perceive. Sure. But at the same time, they express a reality that cannot be seen. Yeah. So the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of the temple, the beauty of the sacrifices, the beauty of all this prescriptions. Let us call it prescription. I, I like to call them more indications of God because that is his will. Mm-hmm. Literally, they are expression of the beauty of what he is. Mm-hmm. And they cannot be separated. In fact, if somebody is impure, somebody doesn't perform according to the beauty that God expects, it would be a problem. He feels offended. Sure. Again, he's intolerant. <laughs> we have a, a natural reaction because his nature is against that. It's totally other. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is that he, in his magnificence, he has to find a place or a mean. That's why everything that is related to the liturgy, to the call, to the ritual, in, in, in Catholic theology, we use this expression, mediata. That means is through a mean, 
So th through something that we can like a see. mediator. Exactly. Yeah. Something that is a mediation towards yeah. a reality that goes beyond. Mm -hmm. But that mm -hmm. mediation at the same time is so crucial because that is the bridge that makes us to be in contact yeah. with that supernatural. So before Moses. Yes. It was even simpler, wasn't it? Uh, practically, yes. I mean, the people of Israel, they didn't know uh, how to worship God. So that's why God himself in the revelation of Mount Sinai we said, this is what you have to do. And then that revelation continued in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the crucial, actually it's the heart of the matter for the liturgy of Jerusalem because when the temple of Jerusalem was built, literally Solomon will build the temple based upon the basic structure of the tent. Yeah. Just now is is a more stable, you know, edification. But even then, the liturgy will continue exactly as it was prescribed in the Book of Leviticus. So it's a continuation, it's a realization, right. and it's supposed to be done in a very special way, because the way how you do it, the manner in which you perform the ritual, also express your devotion, your love, and your sincerity. So, the the physical expression is. 100% coherence with what's supposed to be mm -hmm. in the heart yeah. or in the spirit. So there's no disconnection. Right. Very important idea. Yeah, and, and the way that they would worship would say something about what they believe. And there's a principle that we as Catholics have today, and that is that, the, that we learn what we believe by how we worship. But let's talk about the divided kingdom, because that is yes. the period that we're, we're dealing with right now. It's the black period, and we call it the black period because it's the darkest period yes. in salvation history. Walk us through real briefly what happened in the divided kingdom. I call Rehoboam the spoiled brat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because he's a spoiled brat. So he's privileged in many ways, of course. So after the divided, uh, after Solomon died, then of course Solomon was a great builder. Mm -hmm. you know, he built the Temple of Jerusalem. He actually imposed a great deal of taxation. So that was very heavy, especially from the tribe of the north. So for people who is listening to us, usually the, the, the region of the north in Palestine, close to Galilee, is actually more fruitful for cultivation than actually mm -hmm. the south. And so the south is very tough, though, so, which is the region of Judah. So it makes sense that most of the money will come from the north. Does it make sense? So that is why the taxations were high. So now that everything is done, Solomon is gone, and now Rehoboam is there. So the, the tribe from the north said, hey, you know, please give us a break. Taxation is really high, so we need money too. You know, we need to survive. Mm -hmm. But the spoiled brat, I'm sorry. I <laughs> know he's a spoiled brat. Because then he asked consultation to the elderly, those who are wise in Israel and Judah, and said, no, no, listen to the people. Listen to them. And if you actually you become their servant in that way, you help them, they will be your servants forever. Yeah. But then he goes and listens to his classmates, yep. let us put it in that way. And so the young people say, no, 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 make them suffer, mm -hmm. that your little finger is heavier than your entire father Solomon. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then he goes, of course. So literally, ironically, uh, and make me laugh because I need to use this word that I don't want to use, practically is finances and politics, the first cause of the division yeah. because of taxation. But I, I, essentially it's because he didn't want to listen. Yeah. He didn't want to hear what was the true need of the other. Uh -huh. And after that, of course, the 10 tribe from the north said, okay, fine. We don't want anything to do with David or with the house of David. And they began to do their life. So as a consequence, then Rehoboam, I'm sorry, Jeroboam, he's, um, he's very smart. Oh, Leader yeah. of the north. Exactly. He's very smart. So he began to say, okay, now that financially we want 
we are separated from the south, mm -hmm. now comes the issue of the sacrifices of the temple, because Jerusalem was the only temple, was the house of God. And everybody, in order to do the sacrifices, or to do the special, the special pilgrimage feast, yeah. you know? Three of them a year. Exactly, the famous, famous uh, Shalos Regalim, they needed to go down. And he said, if they go down, their hearts actually will deviate it from me, they will go to the house of David. So very strategic. He actually built two main temples, uh -huh. one in Bethel, which is right on the border. Yeah, it is. Right on the border. Bethel, just, just north of Jerusalem. Exactly, right on the border. So the guy is brilliant. I mean, it's not stupid at all. And then the other one, right in the north, right on the border with Aram or Syria, yeah. which is Dan, right there, one, one on the top here. So whatever you are, you go to the closest one to you. Yeah. And on the top of that, in whatever hill you find, let us build an altar there, yeah. right? So the famous Bamot. So, and then... He began to institute his own priestly line. So they were not Levi. So, okay, fine. And he began to create his own festivities. And this, guy's so, a, this guy's an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, he's a mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he understood the people very uh -huh. well. Financially, okay, everything is a done deal. But now, the religious aspect, and that is actually the great sin of Jeroboam. And the thing is that it's quite interesting because when we read the text, right? The author will give his own judgment, I mean, the, the writer. And when Jeroboam actually began to realize this, uh, uh, created this division religiously, he actually consecrated each temple, right? And he created these golden calves in plural. Yeah, and yeah. he said, these are your gods, yeah. Israel, in back plural. To, back to Egypt. Exactly, in plural. So it's very interesting, yeah. plural. Yeah. And then with all these creations of festivities, practically a parallel religion to the one from Jerusalem. Sure. But and counterfeit. Exactly. And then the author would say, this is the great sin of Jeroboam. And that becomes a ritornello that will appear throughout all the book of Kings, starting from chapter 12, until the end, practically in the book, of, in the second book of Kings, it's mm -hmm. always the pattern for every single offense that it the is. people of Israel will do is because of Jeroboam. Yeah. Even though that he's dead two hundred years ago, it's because of Jeroboam. The destruction of Samaria because of Jeroboam. <laughs> so all the evil that will happen is because of Jeroboam because of what he did. Yeah. And that becomes the pattern of judgment for the author. And it's, it's terrible because with that comes so many bad consequences. So the North is really in a mess now. Oh, yes. Really in a mess. <clears throat> At Bethel, they have one altar, and they put a golden calf there. They put a golden calf up, up to the North as well. They have to have their own priests, you mentioned. They have to have their own feast days. Exactly. And, and, and all of that. And the result of it is what? How would, you, how would you characterize the result of life in the North when it comes to not only their, their faith, but their identity? Oh, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Because with that kind of um, relaxation in matters of religious mm -hmm. devotion to Yahweh, it was easy to combine Yahweh with other cults other kind of practices, a divination, necromancy, also sexual, sexual ritualism. Yeah. So that is why the, the people, when they read, for example, these books, they think, okay, they do performances, they do sacrifices, they, they do all these kind of awful things, but they don't realize why they are so attractive. 
because also sexuality is involved. Yeah. And they began to combine these rituals of Baal, these rituals of fertility with Yahweh and the Asherahs. And, and then they, it, 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 practically you lose your identity. In fact, the people of Judah right from the beginning, they didn't even consider anymore the people from the north are being true Israelites mm -hmm. and became even worse later on with the destruction of Samaria. But that is actually a big problem. And then at the end, there were a little bit of everything at the same time, nothing. And that actually says the text, that actually in living the rage of Yahweh, you know, Yahweh actually no. And Yahweh began to say, you know, you are going to be destroyed because he's allergic to this kind of thing, very much so. And unfortunately, that began to happen also in Judah, too. Judah was not the 100% pure, right? But that is why also the same kind of uh, practices began to be infiltrated inside of the Temple of Jerusalem. But there are, there are really awful kings, actually, who actually profaned the, the temple, like Ahaz, for example. That was a big name in the, in the south. But nevertheless, there are other kings that were by far better, right? Mm -hmm. That tried to purify all that from the south. But in the north, nothing. Nothing. And the problem with that is literally they, they are lost. Mm -hmm. They are lost. And the moment that you don't have certainty, that you don't have absolute values that are clear in your life and everything goes, everything goes. And we began to borrow from here. We began to borrow from there. And then we do whatever we want. The outcome is destruction. And that is why the second book of Kings, chapter 17 is clear, actually makes a good reflection about that. Why Samaria or the whole northern kingdom was lost precisely because of this. They, didn't, they were not faithful to these absolute values, to the will of Yahweh, that they were clear right from the beginning. And what is yeah. the outcome? You talk about, you say Yahweh, yeah, we would say um, the name of God, Yahweh. You know, Yahweh, uh, it's the, the unpronounceable name yes. of God that the South really loves, really respects. In Hebrew, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, or Yahweh. Yeah. And I like that you, 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 you refer to him as Yahweh. And, uh, and that's, the name, that's the name of God, and that's who they're identified with. But the North has lost the identification now. Yes. And it reminds me so much you know, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when the enemy took Jesus out into the wilderness. Yes. And he tried to defeat Jesus by attacking his identity. Yes. If you are the Son of God, then turn these, these uh, stones into bread and so forth. And that's the way the enemy still does it today, is he'll try to, uh, try to attack your identity. You aren't who you think you are, you know, or, or getting you to question your own identity so that you, you don't know who you are. If you don't know who you are, what, you know, what are you beholden to? And, and uh, the North definitely lost their identity. So leaving the liturgy behind or, or changing the liturgy substantially uh, wasn't a small thing in Bible days for people who want to talk about that today and they say, well, does the liturgy really matter? Well, why don't you ask the North? Oh, why don't you ask the North if the liturgy really mattered? Because when they, when they were cut off and their identity was cut off and they had to come up with a different liturgy, this was the implosion that took place. And like you said, you know, by 722, from 930 to 722, it's a short period of time yes. to come and go. Yes. You know? But I, you know, sometimes when we read the scripture, we read the scripture with the mindset that we have today in the 21st century, yeah. okay? So yes, I can be a good person. I don't go to mass. 
I don't follow any rituals at all whatsoever. I don't do any liturgy, but I'm a good person, you know? so I'm fine. You know? So yeah. for sure, we'll be in heaven if you believe in heaven and everything else. Okay, mm-hmm. but that that it will be impossible in ancient times. The only way, at least in the expression of the biblical author, to express your love and your relationship with God is through these established rituals. Yes, and those rituals is not the will of the people. Yeah. It's not. It's not some kind of democracy. We decide what to do. No, 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 no. It's Yahweh Himself who said, this is the way how I want it. So literally, the liturgical expression is fulfilling the will of God. Mm-hmm. The, that by itself is, is an absolute standard that you have to follow. Yeah. So it was not a, an optional thing. It's literally what God wants from you, and that is the way how he wants to relate with you, mm-hmm. at least in the biblical text. And the same happened because today, the, the liturgy that we have in the Catholic Church is literally a, a Christianized expression of the same spirit. Yeah. So we didn't invent a new liturgy. It's, it's actually the same spirit of this relationship that is me- mediated, that now is expressed through the eyes, through the experience of Christ. Yeah. So it, it's like that. It's, and that implies not just only my personal existence individually, isolated from everybody else, but also as a community, all of us, myself, but also as a community. We do sacrifices, we do reparations, we actually we present ourselves before the Lord, and the Lord will accept us, and He is the one who declares we are justified or not, or if we are holy enough. Yeah. You know, according to Him, not, not to ourselves, not to Him. Well, I think one, one thing that Divided Kingdom uh, teaches us is liturgy matters. Oh, yes. Liturgy does matter. And if anyone tries to tell our friends that liturgy doesn't matter, we can just go back to the this time period and show them that it sure mattered in their lives. One of the greatest insights, I think, in the, um, in the entire Bible that really speaks of the North is this one. I'll just share this one, and you can jump on top of it. <laughs> and that is the prophet Hosea, right. who speaks to the North, to, yes. to, uh, to Israel. He came to the North, and his message was, God is your husband. You've been unfaithful. You're going into exile. But I will not forget you. I will come to you and give you refreshing water. Refreshing water. So there's the pattern of of, uh, Hosea. God is your husband. You've been unfaithful. You're going into exile. I won't forget you. I'll come to you in the wilderness. I'll give you refreshing water. That's the message, okay? But the north completely really obliterated in 722. Absolutely. Now, the Assyrians who defeated the north, or I should say just clobbered them, the Assyrians who beat the north up took five other nations, leaders, brought them into the north, mixed them with the remnant there. Yes. This is really the seedlings, if you will, of the Samaritans. Absolutely. The Samaritans who have nothing to do with Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Samaritans have nothing to do with Judah exactly. in, in the south. And that, that, uh, that split goes all the way into, G, into Jesus' time. But here's Jesus, John chapter 4. Yes. He walks into Samaria. He walks into the territory of the northern kingdom of Israel, he walked long after they were destroyed. He walks in, but he walks in with what the prophet was thinking. And he comes up to a woman at the well. You know that story? Yes. And what does he say to her? <laughs> Give me something to drink. Give me something to drink. <laughs> but you are you asking me for something to drink. Yeah. A woman, my goodness, talking about minorities. <laughs> yes, yes. And then, and then Jesus asks a question. He says, uh, 
Go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right. He <laughs> says you are right. You have had you have had five. Those five that came down and and she goes, and then she left her pot, the jar, and went off and told everyone what who she met and what what who Jesus was, and so clearly, we talk about the North as being pretty much a disaster yes. in the North, but God speaks in the midst of a disaster. Yes, and He keeps His promise to those who are there. Years and years later, and I think that's a good thing. Just to you know, to remind all of our our friends uh, who are watching today that if God has given you a promise in Christ, it doesn't matter what your disaster is, it doesn't matter what your disaster is. God can put this back together again, and uh, and I and I love that. I, I really, I really do. Let's move into the New Testament for a little bit. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, well, I could stay in the Old Testament all day long, and I know you could too, because we <laughs> no. learned so so much. Talk us through the transition from that Old Testament temple, the second temple, they call it. Yes. And if you look up book, books you know studying, they'll call it the second temple period. Exactly. First temple, Solomon, second temple. and uh, But that one's not going to last long No. either. No. That one's going to be crushed in 70 AD yeah, by, the, by the Romans. Yeah. So walk us through that. Yes. During the time of the Second Temple, more or less the same sacrifices they will be performed, knowing the same splendors it used to be, because here is a, an academic debate, and I don't want to get into this. Is that Ac the, Academic debate? Yes, yeah, so about the, the Ark of the Covenant was not there, that was empty, So, that, but nevertheless, the, the Israelites, they began to put their faith more into the structure by itself and the sacrifices actually became even more important. But even though there were some, some modifications in that, second, in that second temple period, and that modification was literally that now the priests, they have more power. And here when I say the priests, I'm talking about the Sadducees. So the Sadducees actually, they are the ones who now they can control even what is pure or not to be dedicated to the temple. And there are so many abuses with that. Sure. Because there comes the financial aspect of it and then the sacrifices that they, they need to put. And they're they, working very closely with Rome. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And they need to keep their own status quo because it's convenient for them because they are priests but at the same time some kind of a princes. And, and, and also they have this kind of royalty going on, right? Even, mm -hmm. even Herod the Great, he became his own, he wanted to be part of this kind of high priest and he created his own priestly line. Anyway, so you will find also this kind of abusive situations, but actually they are, the main point of um, concentration is actually those who perform the rituals. That means the priests and the high priests of the time. And they became the target for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because in, and in fact, um, that is why he, he actually condemns them quite harshly, because the way how they are performing actually is not pure, it's not acceptable but they declare everything pure according to their own indications. Mm -hmm. And here we got, again, during the time of the Second Temple, we have especially very much, very much established the famous, the famous three pilgrimage feasts, right? Which is the Pesach, Passover, then the Sukkot, and the Shavuot. Sukkot, it will be the tabernacles, no? Actually, I should invert the order. Pesach, Shavuot, Shavuot is Pentecost, which are in spring, and then in the fall is the Sukkot. Mm -hmm. And it's very important because Jesus himself does those pilgrimages. He does. Yeah, it's very clear in the Gospel of John, actually, more than the rest of the Gospel, but he does. Mm -hmm. That means that he's a very faithful Jew who goes there to do the purification, to do his offering to the temple. 
And then he began to realize about these abusive situations, also the abusive situation, how these, those who actually know more, they declare Corban, mm -hmm. their property, so they can avoid to pay money or the bills to their parents, for example, or to other members of the family. Yeah. He began to be a very harsh critical of this, but at the same time, he wants this spirit. That is something that we need to be very clear. Jesus does not want to eliminate the rituals. He actually participates in the rituals. What he wants is the purity of those rituals according to the mindset of God himself. And that is actually what he criticized a lot, and especially the priesthood of the time. But he will be alive today here. I mean, he will criticize us tremendously. Actually. <laughs> he will clean the floor with us, actually. <laughs> so, but yes, that was in that time. But that is quite amazing. Mm -hmm. So in, in this particular situation, Christ later on will become the model of a priesthood, the model of the sacrifice. He literally is the perfect priest. When the moment of doing the sacrifice, usually every priest also has to do a sacrifice for himself and then the sacrifice that he's supposed to present right. according with the day. Mm -hmm. Jesus later on in the letter to the Hebrews, but we call it the letter to the Hebrews, literally he doesn't have to present any sacrifice for himself because he's pure. Right. He's the absolute model of a priesthood. Yeah. You know, the, one of the things I learned years ago when, over in Jerusalem, the Hebrew University, was that the the rabbis during Jesus' day, who had been so used to the sacrifices for years and so forth, they had a teaching and they had a, a worldview, and that was that when the Messiah comes, yes, all the sacrifices are going to cease except for one, and that was the Todah offering. Uh, share with our friends about what the, to that, the Thanksgiving. It's for the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. offering. Yes. So now that's an interesting concept to me. It's not in the Bible, but it was clearly understood by the people that when the Messiah comes, there will be no more need for all of these sacrifices, except one will continue, which is the thank offering. It's exactly. The, it's the, which we would say, Eucharist. Yes. The, the Eucharist. And wouldn't you know it, they were right in that when Jesus came and he died on the cross, rose from the dead, he fulfilled every single sacrifice. He fulfilled the law, he told John in Matthew 4. You know, John says, hey, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, no, no. We must fulfill all righteousness. We fulfill, we end the story. We complete the story. And all the sacrifices now are fulfilled, and the resurrection was on Sunday. And so now the Sabbath is now Sunday, not Saturday. So we've made a turn here, haven't we? We're into yeah. a whole new dimension of yes. litur liturgy now. Yes, in fact, at least that is part of the Catholic tradition forever, that even in heaven there is a permanent liturgy of thanksgiving yeah. in which even there, Christ will still be the mediator of the whole humanity. Yeah. It's very beautiful, that aspect. Um, and this, because already all the reparation is done. Yes. So usually the main thing of the sacrifice is to repair yeah. transgressions in order to reestablish some kind of order, the tzedakah, according to the will of Yahweh. But once that the Messiah does everything for us, Everything is done. Yeah. Big sign out there. No more lambs needed. Exactly. Yeah. There is no more reparation. <laughs> the blood, that is why in the letter to the Hebrew, the blood of, of, of Jesus, it has more value than thousands yep. of blood, a thousand calf, a thousand bulls to be killed yeah. or sacrificed. So it's quite important. But it's true. 
the, the state in heaven, or at least the, the heavenly mindset, the heavenly liturgy, is a constant thanksgiving to God, praising for what he is. Yeah. So we call, we call Mass yes. the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Hmm. And I hear people saying, over and over, I hear people saying, Ah, oh, Father, Mass is boring. Yes. Now, am I missing something? Is Mass boring to you? No. <laughs> no. What's boring about the Mass? Oh, well, you know, uh, first of all, I mean, it's quite interesting because we call the Mass the Eucharist, no? Yeah. And Eucharisteo in Greek means to give thanks. Literally, the whole Mass is mm -hmm. a thanksgiving, it's a toda. Right. So just to connect, I forgot to mention that. It came to my mind that I didn't say it. <laughs> but um, I think if we, we give for granted so many things. And also we are literally, I'm talking today, right? We are disconnected from the Eucharist, from the Mass. Yeah. For us, it's just a checkbox to follow, to fulfill on Sunday. Right. But there is, we don't see the Mass as a true living experience in which we actually are in contact with God. Yeah. And for me, the big problem is not to entertain, because that, that is the thing. The That's different than a mass. Exactly, exactly. That, because I know priests, I have friends, priests and, and pastors say, okay, what do we do to make the mass more attractive? And they hire this kind of band. A band, it's a concert. So, but I'm, I don't go mass to mass just to have a concert. I, I can't listen to that, even on my phone. So why do I have to go to mass yeah. to listen to a concert? What is the essence? That is the problem. We try to entertain, right. to attract people just to be in some kind of a show. Absolutely not. No. No. Absolutely right. not. Right. Why? What is the problem? That we don't believe. Honestly, I was checking the Pew Research Center, the statistics in 2019, and, 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 and it's mesmerizing to say that one third, only one third of Catholics believe that God exists in the Eucharist. And that's something? One third. Yeah. I mean, 30%. So 70% of Catholics in the United States do not believe that God is in the Eucharist. So why are you supposed to go there? They missed the boat, didn't they? Exactly. exactly. The, the whole thing. Why? There is no meaning of having an encounter with God. There is right. nothing. So I just go there because, oh, it's a sin if I don't go there. Or because my parents did tell me. So oh, then they will ask me, so I will go there. That is completely wrong. Yeah, go, go back for a second to what you were talking about. I thought it was very important what you said there. And I think people need to know about it. And that is... If you think that the Mass is boring, there are two things that you can do. One, change the Mass. Bring in the music, get some smoke, get some lighting, yeah. you know, uh, drink coffee, drink whatever, whatever people are going to exactly. do, which we don't recommend at all whatsoever. So I'm just saying hypothetically. One thing you can do is just change all the externals, and then people will feel like, Wow, I've been to church because I had coffee and yeah, I had a show. music and things. You can either change the externals or change the internals. Exactly. Understand what this is. Yes. And if you understand what this is, you'll never say, it's boring. You're a priest. Yeah. <laughs> and you celebrate the Mass. At the point in the Mass when you say as a priest, this is my body, this is my blood, something happens, and you said 70% of the people don't believe it, yeah. but bread becomes the body of Christ, yes. wine becomes the blood of Christ. Yes. Now, now that we're in the New Testament, now that Jesus died for the sins of the world, can't just 
anybody say those words and you get the body and blood of Christ? I mean, it's a new day. Let yeah. everybody in, right? Can't I say them? I mean, if I can say them, uh, or, or is, there a, is there a new testament priesthood? Like the old, like there was in the old, because in the old, you, I couldn't march into the temple in the old and say, I got myself a lamb here. Exactly. Where do I do this? Exactly. You know, they would have said, get the crazy guy out of here. Yeah. But now some people think, well, just anybody can do this. But they can't, can they? No. <laughs> At least in the Catholic Church, no. <laughs> okay. So what's the difference between you and me? Okay. Besides that you have a, a, a better accent. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> took me 10 years, 10 years before I said those words as a priest. And those 10 years is a time of discernment, preparation, and also to be accepted by the community that we call the Catholic Church to be at least an instrument to do that sacrament by the ordination. So in the moment that I'm ordained, I'm anointed, and my function is to perform that liturgy. My function is to be an instrument of God through the sacraments. That's your number one, isn't it? Yes, yeah. especially the Eucharist, especially the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the center, is the reason of being of a priest, actually. It's the center of literally the liturgy and the life of the church because it's God himself who is actually present there physically dwelling with us, among us, and even within me, within us, when we do the communion. And that is, is a mystery of the faith, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I should say this in, you know, here, but I, you know, I, it took me spiritual directions for years. Okay? When I, I was a young priest, you know, everything was so beautiful. You know, it's the honeymoon. You know, wow, so much energy and celebrating the Mass. And wow. But then after a while, no? the routine, you know, uh-huh. and, then, and then you began to question. Is it true? I mean, I'm a piece of rubbish. I mean, how in the world, when I said these words, from me, not not talking about somebody, me, Uh this piece of bread will become the totality of Christ? How that can? And so you began to question. It's true. (laughs) But but those are the temptations. Yes. And I'm being being very honest. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure that hundreds of priests have gone through this. Because you began to question. So is, is it really... Me? I mean, God actually is using me? Yeah. It's overwhelming. I bet it is. It's overwhelming. And, and doubts will come. And that is the, the, the spiritual tempta- temptations there. And, and then it's uh, through a spiritual direction. It's, it's to accept with humility. Yeah. You know, to accept with humility. I mean, the apostles, when they were with Christ, they couldn't understand everything. Mm. They needed to have the assistance of the Holy Spirit later on to try to understand what he was saying or doing. And slowly for us, the same is just to do it, to do it well. And in the moment that even though that I consider myself unworthy, but if I do it according to the spirit of the church, to the love of the church, to the community, what is, what is prescribed for me, at least I have the certainty that the Holy Spirit, even though if I don't understand it or don't feel it, is still acting. Yeah. And that's why it's so important. What do we do? How do we, how do we get this all straight now? How do, we, how do our families start to communicate a different message than that 70% that's out there. Oh, my goodness. I mean, first of all, we need priests who truly believe, you know, because that is essential. I cannot proclaim about God if I don't have it in my heart. I cannot, because I'm not convincing. How can I? Mm-hmm. How can, how, yeah, and I'm sorry if I'm saying this, but it, also we have a great deal of responsibility. We truly need to believe 
we truly need to celebrate the Eucharist with dignity. That is essential. If I don't respect the way how I perform the liturgy, how can I expect somebody else to respect it? That is essential. The other thing is the way how we do catechesis. The way how we do catechesis is not effective. Maybe some parishes, some dioceses will do reforms and so on, but we need to start right from the family. Yeah, you, the parents send the kids to the, the Sunday school or to the catechesis in the parishes. Mm-hmm. But that is one hour, two hours, maybe a week, or maybe two hours every two weeks. But then the real formation is in the house. So if your parents, parents of kids, they don't believe, how can you expect the kids to believe or to have some kind of, a, some kind of interest in reading the scripture? That is why for me the first catechesis is to start to read the scriptures to fall in love with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then the rest will follow because I want to be closer to her. I want to get to know more. Oh, I want to get excited about reading the scripture. And then I go to masses because I really need him. Not because it's a checking box, kind of task that I need to do. Because we're doing exactly the opposite as the first Christians did. The first Christians, they fall in love with the message and then they will do anything. Mm-hmm. We impose a message with our love and then, okay, fine, I, me- I memorize this. Okay, I memorize that prayer. Yes. And, and that's it. Other than the memory of some words that you say is nothing. And what can we expect? Right. What can parents do? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I mean, if it would be me, if I actually, uh, instead of doing catechesis for kids, I would do catechesis for adults all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. But catechesis is not just only instruction. No, no, no. Actually doing some kind of a community experience of, of going to places where we can experience God through the others or doing, doing some kind of missionary work. It doesn't have to go to Africa. No. You can do missionary work just here around the corner, yeah. any place, right? Because then the reality of the other, you find also the Lord. And of course, with the scripture and the sacraments. But it has to be a, a full immersion experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think you know, uh, that's good. One, one of the things that I think parents can do, from my perspective, is we need more priests. We definitely need more priests. There's no doubt about that. It's a cycle. Yeah. If we don't have families that believe, where are the vocations coming exactly. from? Exactly. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is, it is a cycle. But I think parents bear some burden of responsibility in that when we go to Mass, I would just ask, what do your children hear from you on the way home? Exactly. Did they hear what Father did wrong? Did they hear that they didn't like the homily? Exactly. Did they complain that it was too long? Exactly. Did they this? Did they that? And the kids are all sitting in the car, going home, listening to mom and dad, and then... Do you think that kid is really going to consider priesthood? You kidding me? And so I would challenge parents. I would challenge parents that if you're on the way home from Mass, keep the discussion positive about the liturgy and the priest. And that it's a beautiful time. And that if we're going to bring people from the outside to Mass, explain to them what's happening. You know, with joy, yes. is that they're looking at something very intimate, and uh, I will help you try to to understand it. And I think it could also be a really good point uh, to improve OCIA, uh, RCIA, and OC. They call it OCIA now uh, to really do a, a better job of teaching these candidates, catechumenates the beauty of the Mass and, and how that is the center of our faith. I think that is essential. We Sometimes we don't explain the true meaning of the symbols of the liturgy. 
-hmm. the colors, the times, why the priest has to join the, his hands. What, what kind? What is the meaning of the gestures? Why the importance of the silence? Right. Extremely important. Right. The silence. Uh, we don't. We don't do that. Yeah. We need to do more than. You mentioned about the washing, like the washing of the hands. Exactly. I, I heard, every, so, every I heard something one time, and it was the, a guy said that if you brought a group of twenty-five Jewish scholars, you put them up in a balcony above the church and said, "Just watch." And they saw the priest washing his hands. Yeah. They would all look at each other and say, we're about to have a sacrifice. Exactly. Because it meant something. Exactly. Yeah. So even if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Welling Wall, there's a fountain there. Yeah. All the Jews go there, even before to, have, to be close to the sacred Just place. Just pray. They need to wash. Yeah. To purify. Yeah. In, before they touch what is sacred. It's a disposition, literally. What is your, I guess you could say, sales pitch for don't go or come home. First of all, in the Eucharist, we have the true presence of the Lord. Of mm -hmm. course, I need to believe it. Sometimes it's not rational, but it's there. No other place you can have that sacramental performance in which God himself is present there. Of course, we are mortal flaw instruments and we have shortcomings, yes. But at least the fa my faith has to be based upon a truth that is independent of my feelings. And I cannot live my life just based upon feelings. But that, that real presence, that sacramental life, which is real, it's not just only symbolic, it's real. Nobody else can have it. It's there and has been like this for millennia. It's not something that yeah. was invented was 50 say, years ago. I was going to say, we didn't, we didn't develop this 100 years ago. <laughs> exactly. For millennia. Since for, the beginning. Yeah, for millennia. Since the beginning. And, and that is why I see sometimes when I'm, I, I'm sorry, but I try to be honest. Sometimes when I have difficulties, you know, and I, I go to a spiritual direction. Also, priests, we need to go to a spiritual direction, which is necessary. Mm -hmm. I go to my spiritual director many times in the past and say, you know, wow, uh, how can I continue to keep my faith alive? You know, in spite of all these difficulties and here and there. Okay, just the Lord, the sacrament right there. But remember Dempsey, he said, remember, remember that many before us, for centuries, they gave their life because they believed that this is real. And their blood became the seeds of so many others to believe. Mm -hmm. So in one way or another, this must be true. Because no other kind of idea can last for more than two millennia and still producing life. Like believing that Christ is real here among us in this sacrament. That for me is amazing. And the fact that just saying that, that I feel connected, not just only with the community that is around me today mm -hmm. on Sunday Masses, but connected with so many before us that have been actually sharing the same faith, their life, for that sacrament, that today we are actually free to celebrate it, but nevertheless in a hostile environment. In a hostile environment. I'll tell you what, Father, I've enjoyed talking to you, but your problem is you need to get more excited. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I enjoy talking to you. I really do. And we've, we've looked at so many aspects of the divided kingdom, the loss of the liturgy. What do you do after that? What's happening today? But, but, Go ahead. But, but you know, this, sometimes talking about the divided kingdom, no? right? How they improvise, they change and make everything goes. Many times that is what happening today in the Catholic world, these abusive liturgies. We began to change. We began to, more, to make everything more attractive until the point that we lose our own identity. Mm. I have friends who go to Mass and say, I don't know, 
if that was a Catholic church or was some other non-denomination, because I don't, cannot distinguish that. When we arrive to that point, we have a problem. Houston, we have a serious problem, <laughs> <laughs> most definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go yeah. to a church, you don't know if it's that, that Catholic or not. That is a problem. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. In the Bible, there are so many different characters. Mm -hmm. And I know that when I read the Bible, I see myself in some of these characters. Yes. Uh, if you, who's the character in the Bible that you most identify with? Well, it depends on the time. But when I was, for example, <clears throat> at the Biblicum, um, Gideon. Gideon? Yes. The book of Judges, chapter 6, that was for me. Because he was afraid. Yeah. He was afraid. He was always hiding. And then the Lord said, you know, uh, you have to go mm. and fight, you know, and face your fear and so on. And he was saying, no, and he was put into the test and said, show me the sign. Then show me the sign. And then, I don't know, that, that literally was because many times I said, you know, what am I doing here, right? Am I really capable of doing this? So always I have these kind of doubts. Why? You know, why me? Why? So Gideon really was like, a, like an echo to me. So you identify with Gideon. Yeah, and, and give me courage, actually. Yeah. Very much as a Gideon, yes. And then the Lord make out of him a warrior. He did. Yes. And so, <laughs> the, he was from a very weak background. Exactly. Too. I don't know. It always resonates with me, Gideon. Yeah. And ironically, because of him, later on, it, it David, no? David, as a, as a young kid, you know, chapter 6, first book of Psalm, chapter 16, uh -huh. 17. But now as a priest, Jeremiah. What do you like about Jeremiah? Because You're being thrown into pits or what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jeremiah, I don't, especially in the last, the last 10 years, Jeremiah has been resonating with me. Because Jeremiah, he suffered a lot because he, needs, he, he doesn't back out, you know? He always said what the Lord asked him to say it. And because of that, he suffered the consequences. And he's always fighting. For me, it's a special, especially now in, during this time, uh, chapter 12 to 20, those prayers of Jeremiah that he's fighting against God. You! <laughs> Why? I've done this, and you! <laughs> and then, and then I said, sometimes I ask the question, so Jeremiah, so you're suffering so much, just leave, right? Or give up, or stop doing it. But he doesn't. He continues to do it. That is the thing. He's yeah. suffering. He complains with God, but it's always in prayer. That is the way how I see it. So yes. he's, you know, it's like I'm talking, God, why? Why this? You know, but he never gives up yeah. until the end. And everybody wants to kill him, but at the end, nobody succeeds. And Jerusalem falls. He witnesses the whole thing and still survives. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. I mean, everybody wants to destroy him. At the end, everybody gets destroyed. Mm -hmm. and he's still doing his mission until the end. It's amazing. That, for me, it mesmerized me. Yeah. Literally, that, that, that aspect of him. That's well, that's interesting. That's of all the people I've, I've spoke to, you're the first Jeremiah and Gideon. Gideon. You're the first Jeremiah and Gideon. It's fantastic. That, Those two, for me, are literally, they, yeah. they give me so much Because when you read Isaiah, when I read Isaiah, I imagine Clark Kent, you know, Superman. Whoa, fantastic. And nothing is perfect. Ezekiel, the same. Superman. But Jeremiah... I see a guy who is struggling, who got doubts, who is yeah. betrayed, who, who goes through so much pain. And I said, well, but he doesn't give up. He's there. And he goes on till the end. I said, wow, this is so real, right? It's almost like a, a guy that you have breakfast with. You know, the same with Gideon. Gideon, you know, it's like a, a kid who, you know, who is afraid of everything. And then all of a sudden, wow, you know. Yeah, God so, used him. But, but without God, they are nothing. How about a scripture verse? You know, I have scripture verses in my life that I hold very near and dear. And sometimes they, they kind of ebb and flow where 
this is my favorite. And then a little bit later on, I really like that one. Are there any scripture verses that you hold tight to, you really identify with, or a, a life verse for you? Yes, for example, in the in Gideon, and uh, he, he said to the angel of the Lord, I am the smallest in my house. I am the smallest in my house, that one there. Mm. Because in my house, I'm the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> but I always I feel like I am the smallest. It depends, not the translation that you read, the smallest or the, or the youngest, or the, but it's the smallest in my house, that one. Every single guest that I bring on to this Bible Timeline show, uh, I, have, I just want to find out how they personally interact with their Bible. And for some people, they'll say, well, I just read it. That's it. And that's great. But then we get some people that they really do a lot of underlining or they write in the margins. Even if they're a teacher, it helps them teach. If they're a priest, it helps them in their ministry. And I'm curious. I know you got a nice, great adventure Bible there. Yeah. But do you, how do you interact with your Bible when you, when you study? Do you write in it? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. For example, in this one, um, I, I, I highlighted with colors, especially sections that are interesting to me. Mm -hmm. like for example, here, right? But uh, I do it all the time. I do different colors. Different colors. Do the colors mean anything to you or just whatever you have? Just so uh, it accents? Yes. Uh, sometimes the colors, it sometimes runs out. I, I usually <laughs> tend to have the orange for things that are more and more spiritual to me or uh, a more important notion that I want to highlight. You know? Uh -huh. So more or less like this. Sometimes I, I, I indicate something with the pen, but the thing is, I'm afraid to reuse all the kinds of pens because then you will show it in, in the following page and will damage, right? Yeah, you know, I use a pen, uh, I use a pen called a Pigma, uh, and it is a very, very thin pen, and it is archival ink, and it doesn't bleed through Bible papers. Okay. Maybe I'll get that for Christmas for you. Yes, I would like that very much. <laughs> but that, that's what I use on, on mine. Now you... Uh, this is the other Bible. This Bible is very special to me. It's also the Bible of Jerusalem it's in Spanish. But this one is since I was in the seminary. This Bible has more than 30 years. Oh, has been wow. with me through mission work, falling down in water. Did you and buy it in seminary? In Venezuela, yes. Okay. That was... In 1992. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to take uh, some time to answer some questions. All right. <laughs> and so let's start off with uh, Jess. Jess asks, Father, I'll give this to you. What is the significance of sackcloth? <laughs> it comes up a lot. I guess first of all, what's sackcloth? Because some some of you might not know what sackcloth even is. I don't think Calvin Klein makes any sackcloth. No, I think so. <laughs> okay. So what is sackcloth? Actually, in Hebrew, is sack. I checked that. Sack, sakim. It's, um, it's a special kind of clothing, but made out of a goat. It's not like the sackcloth that like we find today that you put the grains of corn. Yeah. No, no, it's actually made out of the, the skin of the goats, usually black goats, and, but it's not refined. It's not processed, so it has to be raw. And you have to put it close to your skin, right? So you can actually cover it here, or you, just cover this part, the pants, and then you tie it with some kind of gird or a cord. And uh, it must be very itchy. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, not, it's not comfortable. And usually that is a sign to do penance, to, that is a sign also to do uh, 
some kind of a prayer of penitence in times of crisis or when somebody dies. For example, David has to use it when uh-huh. he knows about the death of somebody. Uh, but it, it has this meaning of uh, humility, humble yourself before God and to do some kind of reparation. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily has to be just only for yourself. Also can be for the people of God or it can be in moments of crisis, can be personal or can be communal. Mm-hmm. So, yes, and... and <laughs> But it appeared quite a lot, especially in these kind of moments of uh, funeral settings. Yeah. But the prophets will do for the penance of the people mm-hmm. in general. <laughs> so it's re- definitely related to mourning and yes. uh, a change of attitude. Yes. Humbling yourself. Exactly. I like that. Yeah, you see it. You see it quite often, you know, in Scripture. But you're right. It's it's always at a point of the change of the heart, you know, as evidenced by the outside. What you're wearing is, is happening on the on the inside. David asked, could people from Israel, Judah, decide which kingdom they wanted to be a part of? To put it simply, could they move or were they basically prisoners of their kingdom? That's a good question, and I thank you for that question. I've never heard that question before, but it's, mm. it's, uh, it seems like a You'd wonder, yeah, I'm tired of the South. Let me go to the I'm tired of the North. I'm going to go right. South. <laughs> I think that was one of the issues of... Um, uh, Jeroboam in building these two main temples, one in Dan and the other one in Bethel. Yeah. So they will be attractive for somebody who is going down then see what's going on in Bethel. So instead of going to Jerusalem, they will stop there. But I don't believe that they have a guard or some kind of a immigration patrol officers right in the woods that you cannot cross. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's, it was more um, this kind of option that it was so attractive that at least most of the people will go to this century instead of Jerusalem. And of course, that implies so many, you know, relaxations in matters of liturgy, also in matters of spirituality. Right. But for example, there are some kings of Jerusalem that actually, when we read the, the second book of Kings, they say, and he was married or his mother was so-and-so from, and they mention a town. Some of those towns are actually not necessarily from Jerusalem. Yeah. So that means that it, 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 there is some kind of flexibility, depends if the people wants to go to Jerusalem. But sometimes Jerusalem was by far much better than the north, but sometimes it was almost the same. So because also mm-hmm. of the corruption of the kings, like for example, Ahaz, Ahaz was a disaster. He's all, he was even sacrificing his own songs, you know, to these other gods, and he was from Judah. So sometimes, I mean, even going to Judah doesn't give you a guarantee that everything will be, be- fine or better than the north, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, I guess it's in between. It's very hard to say black and white, right? Okay, Pat asks, uh, the books included, in the divided kingdom time period, are they all written by people from Judah or are some authored by people in Israel? Well, that's a good question. Yes. I mean, when we read, for example, the book of Kings, right, which is actually the main source for right. the, the timeline, mm-hmm. you can see that it's evident that the author is pro-South, I mean, pro-Judah. I mean, even though there are maybe decent kings in the north, all of them are evil. So, but always there is some kind of a privilege, always for the south. So it's, it's quite ironic. In fact, many academicians actually they say that with great probability the last hand of composition has to come from the south. But nevertheless, there is also a strong criticism against the south at the end, especially at the end, because of the crimes of Judah, the yeah. sins of Judah. Judah also did evil in front of the eyes of Yahweh. So that is why at the end also Yahweh has to destroy Judah. But nevertheless, we can say that most of the persons that 
at least the image of the, or profile of the author of the final redaction and the final writing has the tendency from the, from the South, because always the South is better. So with a great deal of probability, yes, they were from the South. <laughs> well, I know a lot of people have asked the question before in my studies. Uh, they'll say, you know, I read Kings, but then I read Chronicles. Yes. And I thought they repeated themselves. Yes. You know, I thought that they repeated themselves, and <clears throat> they were asking, well, are they both right? And it's, why, why do we have two of them, you know? That's an excellent question. It's yes. a, yeah, and, and uh, you know, the answer to that is that you have the div division of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is the, is the line of Jesus. Yes. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Chronicles is the Chronicles of the Kings, and it doesn't chronicle the north. It stays with the South. Exactly. And so when you're reading Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, you may be reading some repeats of yeah. things that happened, but it's in the South, and it's fairly positive about the South. Exactly. It's a, a different point of view. Yeah. Also, the Book of Chronicles, I mean, historically, we place a centuries later of the historical composition of uh, kings. But nevertheless, that is a beautiful example of how the Bible read itself yeah. and reinterpret itself, given then re-emphasize and reconfirm, but also giving also another hints, another kind of interpretation according to their time frame. Mm -hmm. But yes, the South is always the one that predominates. There's no question. <laughs> yes. Okay, Sue asks, even though Jeroboam, who is in the North, mm -hmm. Jeroboam created idols and turned away from God, were there still people in the Northern Kingdom that remained faithful to God? If so, what did that look like in the absence of a temple? Well, if there were people that they were faithful, I guess they, they, they went to Jerusalem. It's just that we didn't find the writings, anything. They turned their, they turned their cell phone off. <laughs> exactly. <and> they <laughs> exactly. They were very happy doing whatever they wanted to do there. So, but we don't have, uh, try to remember, no, we don't have an example, actually. No, we Somebody don't. Somebody leaving, actually, that would say, and he left the north and came to live in Judah. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to offer to the Lord. So quite fascinating. But I'm guessing if somebody wanted to do that, they could. Mm -hmm. But we don't have Yeah, that. as we far as we know, there weren't border checkpoints. Exactly, yes. <laughs> you know, but Jeroboam certainly wanted the, the, uh, the stores to keep open in the north. Yes. You know, and keep, and keep people there, for sure. Georgina asks the question, how should we enter into reading the books of the divided kingdom time period? There is so much evil, sadness, and disappointment. It almost seems like you shouldn't read it unless your faith is firmly established. Otherwise, maybe reading these books could uh, shake your faith. Now, Georgina asked a good question there because, and I think it's a good question, because in the Bible in a year, you know, when we went through the Bible in a year, the majority of people are just like, wow, that's, that's, that's really neat. Now, there were some, to be fair, there, was, there were some people that shook their faith where they read about all of these things like harem warfare and you know, Jericho, the killing of everything there, uh, and certain other verses that left them with, in some ways with more questions than they had before. And they characterize it as their faith was shaken, you know? So she's asking the question, well, how, how do we read this? Because there is a lot of sadness and disappointment, how should we read it? I mean, um the fact that your, shake, your faith is shaken by this story, I think is good. Mm -hmm. 
because in the moment that we are out of our comfort zone and we are questioning, we began to doubt, that actually is a challenge for me to get to know more. Mm-hmm. And precisely in that kind of anomaly, we grow. Yeah. At least that is my point of view. And, and, and to be honest with you, I know that it's difficult, sometimes even scandalous to read this kind of uh, narrative, these episodes. But nevertheless, at the same time, it's beautiful to see that in the middle of all this chaos and faithfulness and misery and destruction, God is still acting. Right. And our life today is no different from that. So yeah. That means God is not, it doesn't get scandalized because of the actions that we do today, still acting. But at the same time, you know, even though that everything finished with the destruction of the North and then the destruction of the South, and it is a, it's also a very strong message that doesn't matter whatever, if we do evil in front of the eyes of God, consequences will come. You see, and, and I'm saying this as a priest, okay? We as Catholics, we get it very easy, okay? Why? We commit a sin and we have the mindset, okay, I just go to the priest, I do the confession, that's it. I am a baby again mm-hmm. and I continue to live la vida loca and then I go to, <laughs> and then everything, it's like taking a shower, right? Yeah. And we don't think of the consequences. We don't think of that. that. That is the mindset of the Catholics today, right? I go for confession, everything is fine, fine. God loves me, everything is beautiful, and that's it. Yeah. But in these books, no. Even though if you have good actions, always evil, we have consequences, and it's inevitable. Yep. And even God will make, okay, it will take time, but it's in, you cannot escape from that. So actually, it's a very serious warning. The whole thing is like a warning. If you, if you substitute God and you continue to do evil in front of God, sooner or later, destruction will come. And it doesn't matter if you have good people who will intercede for you. It's serious. And ironically, that is the essence of our Christian life. Mm-hmm. The, the main essence of doing confession is to repent, to really change and stop doing it, not as an excuse to continue to do it. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with being shaken. Exactly. You know, like, you're, like you're saying, uh, being shaken is a part of life. People actually pay money to do it by going to horror films. You know, and they'll pay 12 bucks to go get shaken exactly. you know, at, at a film like that. I don't think there's anything wrong with being shaken. I don't think there's anything wrong with having more questions. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with not having an answer right now. Exactly. And this is hard for us as Americans because we want our faith to be in a nice box with a yeah. bow on it. Everything is in control. Everything's in, in control. And we want control of our lives. And when our lives are not under control and our story seems to be out of control at times, this can be upsetting. But know that Jesus fulfilled everything. Everything. And the stories that are taking place in the Bible are taking place at a time where, like now, it's not perfect out there. There's people doing bad stuff. There's people doing uh, evil things. There are silly decisions being made. I was going to say stupid decisions being made by people uh, and choices that they, that they make. Uh, what happens in the Bible in some ways is very similar to just turning your television on at night. Hmm. In fact, I think that what we're watching on TV in some cases is a lot worse oh, by know, far. than what we read in, yeah. in the Bible. But I, don't be afraid of ambiguity, you know? Don't be afraid of not having the complete answer right now. I still have questions after 45 years of studying the Bible. I still have questions. can't believe I just said that. 45 years of studying the Bible. I still have questions, but I didn't leave the faith. Yes. I didn't give up. I just know that I'm a very finite 
and weak person who is dealing with great mysteries and uh, I'm sometimes I'm a knuckle skull, a skull, you know, a knuckle brain. And I, I have to study this until I get it. I'm okay with that. Life's an adventure. This is all an adventure. And sometimes I think it reflects the attitude that people are saying, well, I'm going to go through the Bible study. I'm going to go through the great adventure. And they go through it once. And then five years later, do you studying the Bible? Oh, we did that five years ago. Exactly. <laughs> Instead of, well, you're supposed to kind of live in it. Yes. You know, live. you live in Scripture. And it's a lifetime of relationship with the Lord, a lifetime of reading, a lifetime of study. And there are questions that I have right now that I'm not going to have an answer for till I'm real old, like 40. No, I'm kidding. Like, uh, I'll be real old, like, you know, I could be 95 years old, and all of a sudden I'm reading, and I think, that's it. That's it. Now I understand it. I'm okay with that, you know. I'm okay with that. So... Isn't that beautiful? The Great Adventure Bible in Spanish. <laughs> How long did it take you to learn Spanish, Father? <laughs> well, I need to ask my mother. <laughs> hey, I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much for uh, for joining us on the show. Your enthusiasm and your uh, your joy and intensity about Scripture is contagious. And uh, any parting words, anything you would like to just say about the Bible or encouraging people in getting into Scripture? You know. We use the word adventure, right? And that word really means a lot because, first of all, in an adventure, you have the illusion that you are in control. But usually part of the adventure is the unknown. Yeah. And processing that unknown is when God gives us the surprises. Yeah. And it, literally the adventure Bible, I think, is that is what it is. It's God in control. But I need to do the first step of the mm -hmm. journey, and then he will start to open the doors and... And then the surprises will come. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you. And I, I'm praying that there will be more of a relationship between uh, the Latino community in the United States and those who simply speak English. Yes. You know, for us to come together, so often events they have were divided yeah. by our language. And it's so great for us to be able to come together, same Lord, same Mass, same Mother, same saints, same hearts. Yes. And uh, to, to come together and to love one another and pray for each other. And uh, it's just been a, a pleasure meeting you, and I, and I, well, pre I appreciate, it. <laughs> appreciate it so much. Could you close us out in prayer? Absolutely, absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, O Lord, King of the universe, for this moment, for this conversation. Please be our teacher, be our guide, and use us according to your will in order to be worthy instruments of your love and your peace all over. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.